Well, this is it, guys. The last episode, both of Buffy and of the Still Pretty videos. So I decided to do a little magic trick for the end of this era. And when I do, my powers will be transferred to everyone watching. All right. Did you feel that? You're all story experts now. You're welcome. Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer YouTube series and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about Chosen, the 22nd episode of season seven and the last episode of the series. Chosen aired on May 20th, 2003, and was written by Joss Whedon with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was also directed by Joss Whedon. Chosen is the big moment we've been working towards since the beginning of Buffy. If Buffy is a story about power, and there are many who would say that it is, although I think it's a story about a lot of things, and sometimes the spinning wheel just stops on power, but if Buffy is a story about power and the full meaning of a story can only be fully understood once it's over, then what this story has to say about power is kind of cool, really progressive, and hella feminist. All right, let's go on patrol. In Chosen, we open with Buffy and Angel reuniting, but before they can catch up too much, Caleb comes back to life. Are you ready to finish this, bitch? Buffy dispatches of Caleb swiftly. He had to split. As Spike watches on jealously from the shadows, Angel shows Buffy a magical amulet that's supposed to be worn by someone ensouled, but stronger than human. He plans to wear it in the fight, but Buffy tells him no. I lose. This thing gets past Sunnydale, then it's days, maybe hours, before the rest of the world goes. I need a second front, and I need you to run it. After a short conversation about Buffy being cookie dough, Angel hits the road, and Buffy returns back to Slayer Central to find a very angry Dawn. Ow. Buffy shares the news about Caleb, then goes to the basement and deals with Spike's pissy entitlement. She hands him the amulet, calls him a champion, and then... Well, you're not staying here. You can't buy me off with shiny beads and sweet talk. You got angel breath. <laughs> All right, Spike, but you're only getting away with that because it's the end of the world. They spend the night together, but Buffy can't sleep, which gives the first the opportunity to try to psych her out. There's that word again. What you are. How you'll die. Alone. But the attempt at mind messing has the exact opposite effect. It gives Buffy an idea. We're gonna win. She presents her idea to the Scoobies and the Potentials, but not to the audience. Everyone signs on and gets to work, and the mystery plan is underway. It's one hell of a risky idea. Buffy's wacky that way. They arrive at the high school, and everyone goes to their stations, separating off one by one, until finally we return to our core four. The Earth is definitely doomed. In the school basement, Buffy opens the seal, and she, Faith, Spike, and the Potentials dive in to discover a vast hellmouth crawling with uber vamps. I'm not worried. As long as Willow can work her spell before they see us. Willow takes the scythe and performs a spell, and we discover Buffy's plan. So I say we change the rule. I say my power should be our power. In the Hellmouth, the Slayers gain their power and the fight ensues. Some of the Uber Vamps escape up to the high school, diving into the second front, where Xander and Dawn, Giles and Robin, and Anya and Andrew fight them off. Robin is seriously injured. Anya is killed. Below, Spike's amulet begins to glow, shooting sunlight through the cavernous Hellmouth, instantly dusting the Uber Vamps. 
The Slayers retreat, but Buffy stays back. I love you. Everyone rushes to the school bus and it takes off as Spike's sunlight starts to rumble the ground. Buffy misses the bus but manages to race behind it on the rooftops and then jumps down onto the bus as it flies out of town, while Spike's massive explosion creates a sinkhole, pulling the town down as the uber vamps are ultimately destroyed. At the edge of the disaster zone, the surviving warriors look down on the destruction, and Buffy smiles as the oppressive weight of her destiny is finally lifted. There are a lot of things to love about Buffy. It's funny, it's inspiring, it's emotionally devastating. It's a story that both doesn't take itself too seriously and takes itself extremely seriously. It's a story called Buffy the Vampire Slayer that seems like it would be campy and ridiculous and yet is one of the most fruitful sources of literary discussions in our modern age. I remember when it first aired, I thought it sounded stupid. I watched one episode from the first season at the urging of a good friend who still, to this day, mocks me for rolling my eyes and walking away from it, as he should. A few years later, during the third season, I worked for the WB station in Tucson, Arizona for a while, editing promos at night, and I edited the Buffy promos every Tuesday and thought, well... That looks stupid. Then, some years after that, when I started writing novels, absolutely everyone was talking about Buffy, and writers I admired greatly were saying it was some of the best writing they'd ever seen. I wanted to learn to be a better writer, and Netflix was a thing, so I thought, all right, let's dance. I got the DVDs and watched the show and was forever changed. Moral of the story? Snobbery hurts the snob most of all. Anyway, it wasn't until I saw this final episode that I realized how powerful this story is, that it started a story in season one, one girl in all the world, and landed it in season seven. Every girl who could have the power will have the power. This show is why I started studying story. I saw this amazing thing and I wanted to know how they did it. And it is a they. Whedon had the idea. He captained the ship. But it sailed so well because of a crew of hundreds who also took the work seriously, who created amazing things, and who now are spread out in Hollywood, making more amazing things. These people understand how story works, why it's important, and how incredibly powerful it can be. I've had the incredible opportunity, once I got over myself, to learn at their feet, to study their work, to do the work I do because of the fire they lit in me. I've studied a lot of stories in my day, but this one will always be special because I've learned more from Buffy than from anything else. And I would just like to say, right now, with goosebumps on my flesh from watching an episode of television I have seen dozens of times, thank you. Okay, maybe I'm out of line. This is kind of a curveball for me. I mean, we are talking about Spike here. It's different. He's different. He has a soul now. That's great. Everyone's got a soul now. All right, I'm going to address this nonsense right off the bat because while the adversarial relationship between Spike and Angel is fun and I love it, the possessiveness and entitlement each of them feels to Buffy is beneath both of them. Angel and Buffy are not together. Spike and Buffy are not together. Buffy has promised neither of them her heart nor her fidelity. They are entitled to neither from her, nor are they entitled to explanations or excuses. The presumptive male entitlement to female minds and bodies is a problem in our culture, so I want to walk through this carefully. Yes, this is played for laughs, and they both look stupid, so textually, we're not saying this is the right way to behave. 
Yes, jealousy is an emotion, and we don't control emotions. Emotions are neither good nor bad. They just are. It's how we respond to them that's important. And we can't always respond well because we're human. And yeah, I know, neither Spike nor Angel are textually human, but every sentient being in every story is subtextually human, so they get the human pass. And the last point in their defense, if everyone behaved perfectly in stories, the stories wouldn't be any good or any fun. But even acknowledging all of that, we still need to address the entitlement here, and honestly, I think we do. Look, problems with Joss Whedon as a human and a man aside, that's his battle to fight, and I'd like to believe he's tending to that. Whedon is not my hill to conquer, but the cultural forces that created Dark Whedon is evident in these interactions. You know, I started it. The whole having a soul. Before it was all the cool new thing. Oh my god, are you 12? I'm getting a brush off for Captain Peroxide doesn't necessarily bring out the champion in me. Ugh. Seriously, Angel? You are better than this on your own show. Go back to L.A. Uh, are you just going to come here and go all Dawson on me every time I have a boyfriend? So Buffy calls it out and slaps it down. That's good. I always feared there was something wrong with me, you know, because I couldn't make it work. Maybe I'm not supposed to. And then we get into the cookie dough thing, which I feel is not chosen because it's a great metaphor, but because we get to make the eat me joke. And ugh, Whedon? 10 points from Slytherin. Now, Buffy's onto something with the cookie dough thing, a bit, but she has this idea that she'll be with someone when she's done, and then it'll work and be all happily ever after and forever, but baby, you're never done. You're never done. When you stop growing, stop learning, stop changing, that's when you start dying. Good relationships will grow with you as you will grow with them. Bad ones will try to keep you static, slowly smothering you with a pillow just to keep you still and in place. So relationships aren't about being fully cooked and then finding someone. Relationships are about finding someone who cooks with you. Now, I get what she's saying, but she's looking at it all wrong. That said, it keeps her from running into the wrong relationship at the wrong time for her. And for Buffy... That's a hell of a win. So following all that, Buffy returns home to find Spike being all petulant and jealous. Was told off in full head. Let me guess. You can smell him? Yeah, that and I also use my enhanced vampire eyeballs to watch you kissing him. Once we're past the nonsense of Spike glaring while the first goads him on, and then his petulance when Buffy comes home, things improve a bit. He steps up to wear the very dangerous amulet, and we get this nice moment between them. Angel said the amulet was meant to be worn by a champion. called a lot of things in my time. So then there's a little more stupid posturing, but Spike course corrects, and they spend the night together, snuggled up in the basement. It's not great. I would have liked it better if Spike hadn't been a possessive, jealous jerk during the last moments we'll have of the two of them together, but I'll take it. I'm not going to just let you whack me back and forth like a rubber ball. I got my pride, you know? I understand. Well, clearly you don't, because the whole having my pride thing was just a smokescreen. Oh, thank God. There is so much, so much happening in this episode that I almost feel at a loss about how to talk about it all. So I'm going to make a list of my favorite moments in this episode in order of increasing delight, taking us all the way to the top spot. This may have skipped your keen notice, but I'm kind of a brat. It's always sort of gotten my way. So you're going to make it through this, no matter how dark it gets. Because now... 
Look, I'm no fan of Kennedy, and there are good reasons behind that dislike. But in this episode, she's not so bad. I even kind of like it when she says, you are my way, even though it makes Willow's success about her because I feel like she means it in a supportive way. I mean, I'm still not going to accept her as a real love interest for Willow, but she's not a completely terrible companion, and it was nice to have an okay moment. I'm terrified. I didn't think. I mean, I, I just figured you'd be terrified and I would be sarcastic about it. Picture happy things. A lake, candy canes, bunnies. Bunnies. Floppy, hoppy bunnies. One of the easily forgettable and yet kind of delightful relationships to emerge from season seven is Andrew and Anya. They have a really nice sibling vibe, and since they're both chaotic neutral, they mesh well together. I've never been a huge fan of the bunnies joke, but here, I like it. I hate that we lose Anya, that after all we've done to sideline and belittle this amazing character, we give her a pretty meaningless and shitty death. But Emma Caulfield rocked every moment she was on screen from beginning to end, and I enjoyed it all, even while still wanting so much more for her. There's a whole world out there that you don't even know about. And a lot of the men in it are pretty decent guys. They'd surprise you. Guy looks at me, let's just say his priorities shift. Why? Because you're so hot? (laughs) It's what it is, yeah. Oh, please. I am so much prettier than you are. Another delightful emerging relationship from season seven is Robin and Faith. I love how he challenges her, how she respects him, how neither one of them get all googly-eyed over each other. But they make a strong team. They each need someone who pushes them, and they do this for each other while never demeaning or berating one another. We don't get much of Robin and Faith, but what we get is pretty outstanding. Angel. I do. Sometimes think that far ahead. Sometimes it's something. Be a long time coming. Years if ever. I ain't getting any older. Now, I have somehow and unfairly gotten a reputation for not liking Angel when actually I like Angel a great deal. I just like him better in his own show. He's more nuanced and interesting, especially when he's not brooding. While the romantic strangeness, the weird entitlement to the affections of a woman he hasn't seen much in the past three years, and the jealous crap are not endearing, the moment where he says, I'm not getting any older, and walks off into the shadows is classic cool angel. And I love that we got him back for a moment, and at least sent him off in a way that was true to the character. Into every generation a slayer is born. One girl in all the world... She alone will have the strength and skill to... There's that word again. What you are. How you'll die. Alone. Where's your snappy comeback? You're right. Hmm. Not your best. This show hasn't exactly played light with sudden revelations for Buffy. We get a good one at least once a season. But this moment where the first taunts her with the very haunting idea of a loan that has been dogging Buffy since the first season and will, once subverted, lay the groundwork for this amazing finale is beautifully done. I didn't see that subversion when I first watched it, and even though it was all right there, it came as such a wonderful surprise. That's how a twist is done right. It's all there for you to see if you can see it. And Buffy can. Buffy, what you said, it it, it flies in the face of everything we've ever... Every generation has ever done in the fight against evil. I think it's bloody brilliant. 
You mean that? If you want my opinion. Really do. The Giles and Buffy relationship has been the emotional backbone of this series since the very beginning. And to see that shook up by some extremely out-of-character moments for Giles has been one of the big disappointments of this season. This moment where she welcomes his feedback and he calls her ideas brilliant is so much better than the typical trading of apologies that usually mends a relationship. It's Buffy and Giles being Buffy and Giles again. And while it's a subtle repairing of the damage between them, and she absolutely deserves a heartfelt apology, I still find it really sweet just to have them back again. I feel about this the way Tara felt about coming back to Willow in season six. Can we just skip it? The fact is that no, you can't ever just skip it. Love means absolutely having to say you're sorry. But in an apocalypse, this'll do. So, what do you guys want to do tomorrow? Nothing strenuous. Well, mini golf is always the first thing that comes to mind. I think we can do better than that. I was thinking about shopping. As per usual. Ah, oh, there's an oh, R&B in the new mall. I could mm. use a few items. Well, now we can discuss this. Save the world, go to the mall. I'm having a wicked shoe craving. Aren't you on the patch? Those never work. And here never. I am, invisible to the eye. See, I need a new look. Any it's this whole eye patch thing. Oh, you could go with the full black secret agent look. Or the puppy shirt, pirate slash... The earth is definitely doomed. This moment, which calls all the way back to the end of the harvest, gives us our core four once again joking around in the face of an apocalypse. Even though this isn't the same school, and we're about to finalize the Buffy Destroys the School three-beat that started with the burning down of the gymnasium at Hemery and her backstory, through to blowing up the giant snake, and finally turning Sunnydale into the world's biggest sinkhole, it's nice to see these four once again in the familiar territory of Hellmouth High, doing their thing. Saving the world. A lot. Ow! Mommy, this mortal wound is all itchy. You pulled a nice trick. You came pretty close to smacking me down. What more do you want? I want you... to get out of my face. I'm not a huge fan of the Buffy dies again mislead, and also I find it a little whiplashy to show her stabbed through the kidney and lower abdomen, which, as I understand it, is pretty much the worst way to be stabbed, and then just suddenly hop up, keep fighting, and run across rooftops to land on a moving bus as though it's just a flesh wound, all because the first pissed her off and apparently Buffy's anger now has supernatural healing powers. Whatever. The annoying improbability of it all aside, I love Buffy's return to power. I love her strength and her fortitude and her kickassery. I don't think the mislead is a great choice narratively, but the execution is nice, and every time Buffy stands up and tells someone to fuck off, I believe an angel gets its wings. You are a goddess. You're a slayer. Get this to Buffy. That was nifty. Willow's fear of her own power has been a constant refrain since she tried to destroy the world at the end of season six. And while it kept the character in a somewhat static place throughout the season, this moment of big victory and phenomenal cosmic power bringing her to a place of extreme light rather than darkness is a gratifying ending place for the character. Although it does make me want it to be a starting place for a new story for her. Because what she does now is going to be incredible. The first is scrunch, so... What do you think we should do, Buffy? Yeah, you're not the one and only chosen anymore. 
Just gotta live like a person. How's that feel? Yeah, Buffy. What are we gonna do now? The look on Buffy's face as she contemplates a future without having to shoulder the burden of her destiny alone is such a fantastic ending point after seven years of her struggling with the weight of the world. A normal life has never really been an option for Buffy, and while it's not exactly an option now, she's not alone. There's help. She can relax and maybe take a vacation. And that ain't nothing. Go on then. No, you've done enough. You could still- No, you beat them back. It's for me to do the cleanup. Gotta move, Lamb. It's fair to say, school's out for bloody summer. All right, y'all know I love Spike. His arc from being season two's placeholder big bad to becoming a champion saving the world is filled with fun and torment and darkness and light. And for him to deliver the sun an ultimate smackdown for a horde of uber vamps set to destroy the world is such a fitting, poetic, and heroic ending for him that even as I mourn his loss, it's a death worthy of this incredible character. My only regret? that he tells Buffy she doesn't love him, when clearly she does. Spike has grown a lot over season seven, and some people hate it, I know, they want their bad boy back. But to deny him this moment of growth where he can accept love that is given and return it through his sacrifice is a flat note in an otherwise almost perfect episode of television. Tomorrow, Willow will use the essence of this scythe to change our destiny. From now on, Every girl in the world who might be a slayer will be a slayer. Every girl who could have the power will have the power. Can stand up, will stand up. Slayers. Every one of us. This moment when girls around the world find their power and stand up is always where I get goosebumps and fist pump and yell, hell yeah. No matter how many times I watch this series, this moment is just as powerful every single time because it's such a transcendent moment of victory, not just for Buffy and the potentials as they fight the demon horde, but for the girls and women worldwide who are treated as lesser, as weaker, as powerless. This moment shows us that no one is powerless, and when power is shared and expanded, miracles can happen. And that's what Buffy is ultimately about. We saved the world. We changed the world. I can feel them, Buffy. All over. Slayers are awakening everywhere. We opened every episode in season one with a reminder of what Buffy was, one girl in all the world, and continually revisited themes of isolation because of it. Buffy was always alone, always separate. Even when there were two slayers, Buffy was always the one. We talked a bit about the essential loneliness of exceptionalism, and I think that's part of why this ending always comes, no matter how many times I see it, as such a glorious surprise. It is only when Buffy shares her exceptionalism that she finally has true community. She goes from being the one to being one of many, and only then can she truly be happy. And as I go through this final episode of Buffy, it occurs to me how powerful this theme of shared exceptionalism can be. I mean, so often, what are the bad guys in stories in pursuit of? Power, right? They want it for themselves. They want to control. They want their will to be done. And sometimes they will even turn themselves into a giant snake in order to achieve that end, even though every evil overlord already knows that turning into a giant snake is never a good idea. Buffy never wanted exceptional power. It was thrust upon her, a sacred duty she had no choice but to accept. 
And for seven seasons, we saw her struggle with that power and the isolation that was a natural consequence of it. So here we are at the end of our story. Our hero has incredible power, mostly all to herself. And what does she do? She shares it. And in sharing it, creates a world that is better for the sharing. It's about power. That's how we started this season, with Buffy saying those words. So what have we learned about power from this? That power is most powerful when it's shared. It makes me think of a story I saw making the rounds recently in which Steven Spielberg apparently said that Netflix movies shouldn't be eligible for Oscars because they're made-for-TV movies and haven't had a theatrical release. That's stupid. The world has changed. The delivery system for movies has changed. And if it's a movie, it should be eligible. If it's better than a theatrical release, it should have a shot at the Oscar. If we truly value a meritocracy, then why not allow everyone with merit to play the game? The problem is that people work really hard to get good at the game. They climb up the ladder and make it into the arena, and then they try to kick the ladder down so no one else can get in. But that's about them. That's about winning. That's about personal glory. People who are truly exceptional don't care about the glory. They care about the game. They work for years to get really good at something, to climb that ladder, and then they reach down to the people behind them and pull them up. Because they're in the game for the game, and they know that the game gets better with more players. Buffy is never possessive about her power, but the idea of being able to share it doesn't occur to her. It's a mystical power. You can't teach that. But here, in the final episode of this amazing series, she finds a way to do exactly that, to share her power with others, to pull them along with her up the ladder. And in the process, she finally eradicates her own loneliness and exclusion. She creates a community of slayers, women who can understand her experience and who can fight alongside her, taking that unbearable burden of being the one off of her shoulders. Of all the incredible things that Buffy does as a story, this is one of the most exciting and revolutionary. The game gets better with more players. That's just how it works. I expand, you expand. Now, Buffy needed a magical scythe to realize this expansion. We don't. When you discover your superpower, if you haven't yet already, reach back and pull others up with you and see if it doesn't make you feel like Willow. I think it might. All right, that's it for today. And since this is my last Still Pretty video and we're here at the end of Buffy, I hope you won't find it too self-indulgent for me to share a little more personally than I might usually do. I started talking about Buffy on the podcast Dusted because I love Buffy, because this story is important and it means something to me. Unfortunately, while I was doing that show, I couldn't even hear my own voice, let alone share it with you. I was literally afraid to record the show every week and I couldn't understand why. Now, after a very difficult year, I figured it out. I eliminated that element and the abuse that came with him from my life, and I found my voice again. I started doing this video series where I left off with Dusted because I couldn't bear the thought of not continuing, but I also couldn't bear the thought of being in that space again, podcasting with someone else about this show that meant and means so much to me, both as a person and as a writer. So because of this, Still Pretty is kind of a mess. It starts in the middle of season six. You can see the evolution as I move from webcam to an actual camera, as I go from shaking and crying to standing and singing out. I mean, not literally singing. I'm not cruel or anything. You guys would not enjoy that. Just trust me. I did all that because you made it possible. You came here. You watched the videos. You sent me emails. You commented on the forum. And many of you supported me in my work on Patreon. 
To say thank you feels inadequate, and saying goodbye is impossible. I'm stronger now. I'm going back into the conversational podcast space with a good friend who I trust to not only allow me my voice, but to add to it with harmonizing insights of her own. I am so excited for that. I've missed conversation. I've missed community for my work. I'm looking forward to getting into that back and forth with someone who will surprise and delight me. I've got that in all my shows now, and it's been wonderful. So if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast version of Still Pretty, please do that now. I look forward to seeing you guys over there as my co-host, Noelle LaCroix, and I start over again with the first episodes of Buffy. Welcome to the Hellmouth and the Harvest. That episode drops on May 31st. Until then, thank you, and stay pretty. Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com/chipperish. Mm-hmm.